Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be jumping into Scripture again today. Today, we are moving all the way back to Job. So we just finished Genesis. What does it mean to finish a book of the Bible? We just got through some of the stories in it. That's really all. We are done talking about Genesis for now. It's probably the only fairly accurate way we could put it as we left so many things on the table. But alas, we move quickly. So we've moved to Job, and you may be wondering why we're moving all the way to Job, which comes after Esther and is after Ezra and Nehemiah, way back there in the middle of the Old Testament. Well, there's a reason that we're moving to that one. So a little background on Job may help. So even though its order in the Old Testament is much later, like I said, kind of right right around the middle of the Old Testament in terms of the books and where it falls. The date that it's often given is believed to be during the time of the patriarchs. So the patriarchs, um, especially being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So somewhere around that time is when most people guess kind of from the context clues that this story would have been likely to have taken place. Now, I will mention um, there are some people who believe this is a totally allegorical story and that Job was not actually a real person that none of these events actually happen, but rather it's kind of just an allegorical story. Uh, I generally take the stance, and I would encourage you to do the same, unless the Bible is explicit about something not being real and being a parable, like when Jesus says, let me tell you this parable, then you're like, okay, this wasn't a real story, he's making it up. Uh, If it doesn't say something like that, I'd just go ahead and assume that these were real characters, because I don't really know what we gain by trying to guess what's a real story and what's maybe an allegory unless it says so. So that's just kind of a general Bible interpretation tip. Um, We try to interpret the Bible literally. So that doesn't mean that there's no place for literary elements like poetry or figures of speech. So we don't want to overly exert when we say literal, but what the Bible asserts we should take as true. So it's telling a story. There's no hint that this is a myth or a, a parable or an allegory. So I take it to be Job was a real guy. These things really happen. So now this is a book that is very poetic in nature. So there are things that are probably kind of dressed up a little bit. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And even the way that the characters are all going to speak is very poetic and kind of purposeful by the author. Anyways, that was a rabbit trail. But all that to say, uh, this is probably during the time of the patriarchs. And so there's two reasons I've got for that. One, and I've got this from a commentary uh, on the book, which was very helpful. It says that there was no mention of any sort of like mosaic law or anything like that in this. So there's no reference to priests or anything of that nature. In fact, it says that he is the basically the priest of his household. And we'll kind of briefly talk about that. But that sounds much more like if you remember when we talked about Melchizedek, Remember, he was a king and priest to God, and it's like, what? He was a priest, but they didn't even have the law. It seems like it's kind of similar there in that he was the uh, God-fearing kind of spiritual leader of his family, and there's not doesn't seem to be any sort of major um, law setup or anything like that in the Mosaic Law. So that's one, and for it to be after seems very unlikely given the, just the nature of the story and the uh, also just the way that his wealth is measured. That's actually the second reason. because after the time of Solomon, we would have expected his wealth to be measured in some sort of precious metals. But instead, like Abraham and Lot, uh, their wealth is kind of measured in livestock. So 
couple reasons that we think that would be kind of a general time period for Job. As far as its authorship, um, it's unknown. There's no author stated. The authorship is traditionally ascribed to Moses, though that's kind of more, again, that's more traditional, um, possibly true. This was probably a story that was passed down by oral tradition for a long time before it was written down. Either way, there's not really been any questioning within um, like the Judaism of toward the end of the um, BC before Christ era. There was never really much question about this books um, being a part of the canon. So it's pretty reliable as far as the um, as far as historical Judaism is. So there you go. Even though they're not 100% sure who wrote it, but you know, ascribing something to Moses gives it definitely the the weight that you want for a book that's in the canon. So this book, I'm sure you're at least generally familiar with it. If you're familiar with the story, you probably are very surprised to find out that this book has 42 chapters because there's not a, actually <laughs> there's not much narrative actually in this book. It's mostly these kind of poetic going back and forth between Job and his friends. So the story is a lot shorter than the book actually is. But it's about suffering. It's about man's foolishness, as is much of scripture because we need to be reminded of that, and God's sovereignty. So those are kind of the themes that are going to pop up. So starting in chapter one with the narrative that we do have, um, this is what it says about who Job was. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send an invite, and their three sisters would to and send an invite and their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Okay, so the too long didn't read version of that. Job was rich and he had kids and they liked to party. So they, it seems like Job is a little bit worried that these feasts that they're having are maybe um, a little bit too revelrous. And so he would always offer burnt sacrifices for them in the morning. Again, so he's kind of um, having this role of a priest, kind of a mediator between them and God. But basically, it seems like he made sacrifices for them just in case they got too drunk and cursed God. That's effectively what we're seeing there in verse five. Um, so he did that continually. So he's also a, a righteous man. He's concerned with his children and um, God not being cursed. So that's kind of what we get as far as Job. And then we get this kind of peculiar scene. So in verse six and seven, it talks about um, a day when the sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also. And I, we probably shouldn't read too much into this as if this is some like actually effective, like this is like a, a thing that happens in literally, you know, but rather this is part of the poetic nature of this book in which it probably is helping us understand a, a heavenly kind of concept by making it a little simpler for us to understand. So again, we're, we interpret literally, but we also know that scripture is going to use figures of speech, going to use ways that are easier for us to understand. I don't know that you can truly sum up a cosmic event in two verses, right? So um, I wouldn't worry too much about like, well, what is this day when the sons of God come to pre present themselves? It's really not a major part of the story. And again, it's probably something we'll never truly understand. So 
I try not to read too much into that. But what we get is this kind of conversation that happens between God and Satan. So God um, is going to say this to Satan starting in verse 8. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So what we see here is God is extolling Job for his righteousness, but Satan's like, ah, it's just because you bless him. He says, let me, let's see what he does if I take all that he has. So God gives him permission to Satan. And here's kind of the point of this scene. God is in control. Nothing happens without his knowledge, without his permission. So Satan is the one sowing the evil, not God. But ultimately, Satan doesn't get to make a move without God allowing it. So all that to say, we don't want to get confused and say that God was afflicting Job with evil because God is not uh, does not create evil. Evil happens because of sin, because of Satan, but God is not the author of evil. So this is more of this is a picture of like God does allow evil to happen, though He Himself is not the author. So that's kind of what we see in this theme or in this um, little paragraph here. So basically what happens, Job uh, has, there's a scene where um, Job has servant after servant come and tell him about how his livestock were either taken away or killed. And then um, he is also told that his children all die at one of their parties. And so he's super devastated, obviously. So in verse 20, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, signs of this kind of just mourning and grief. But it says in verse 22 of chapter one, all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So basically everything that Job has is taken away from him, just as Satan wanted to do. And unfortunately for Satan, he was wrong. And Job still didn't curse God uh, or charge him with wrong, even in losing everything that he had. So obviously he's got to be miserable. You can't imagine what it'd be like not just to lose all your great possessions, but then 10 children. He had 10 children and they all died in a tragic accident that was orchestrated by Satan. So, but even in that, he doesn't charge God with wrong. So Satan, his theory is wrong. He says he, he won't love you anymore if you take away all he has. He did, and he still did. So Satan decides he's going to press his luck a little bit. So um, we go back to this, another scene and Satan and God are talking, starting in verse four of chapter two, it says, then Satan answered the Lord and said, well, actually, sorry, this will help to give us some context. Uh, God says, hey, look, um, even though all this happened, he still holds fast to his integrity, still blameless and upright. So then in chapter or in verse four, Satan says, ah, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So now not only have all his possessions and his children been taken, but now he's just covered in extremely painful sores, sitting in the ashes of what used to be his life and scraping sores with a piece of pottery. That's what he has come to. And his wife comes and says, "Eh, just curse God and die, whatever. Let's get this over with. And Job says, are we only going to receive good and not evil? And it says he still did not sin. So he didn't curse God. So basically this idea that he didn't accuse God of wrong, like it says in chapter one, verse 22. So all of these things happen and Job's staying pretty strong. And then we get a visit from some of his friends in verse 11. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Okay, so some nice friends here. They come and they just sit with Job in his misery they're there. No one even speaks. They're just there. So this is good Job's friends, okay? There's good Job's friends and bad Job's friends. They're the same three friends, but they do things that are good, and then they do things that are bad. So, but they come and say, well, this is good Job's friends. But then the the main body of the book, which is going to go three through like 41, is kind of this poetic back and forth between Job and his friends and this guy who comes later that we'll talk about. But I'm going to go and summarize 40-ish chapters for you. These are kind of the arguments that they make, okay? So they're basically arguing why this has happened. Um, And they each kind of have their own opinion, all of whom I'll give you a spoiler. They're all wrong. Um, And we'll get the truth here at the end. But first, we've got Eliphaz. Um, He's going to... So a lot of times they'll say like one kind of sentence, and then there's a lot of just, again, poetic language and... Um, they really expound upon it with very flowery poetic language. So, but I'll try to give you the, the statements they're making. And we'll, since we are shortened on time, we will not read all the descriptive things that they write. But chapter four, seven through eight, Eliphaz says, remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and so trouble reap the same. So what Eliphaz is saying is nothing bad happens to innocent people. Nothing bad happens to people who don't do anything wrong. Okay. And the way that I've seen it is it's the people who sin are the ones who have trouble. So that's Eliphaz's argument. Nothing bad happens to good people. Okay. And I think we can all hear the falseness in that, unless we think we're all terrible people, which I mean, without God, we are. Bildad um, is kind of speaks a little bit more pointedly at Job in chapter 8, verses 2 through 7. He says, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. So basically this idea that 
it, clearly somebody did something wrong. He's like, your children must have sinned. Hey, if you seek God and plead for mercy, like maybe he'll deliver you. So it's kind of similar to what Eliphaz is saying in that, well, nothing bad happens. People don't do anything wrong. But Bildad is kind of saying, uh, you need to repent. You obviously did something wrong. So it's getting a little more personal with Bildad. And that's kind of what he's going to talk about. And then his last friend, Zophar, good name for a friend, good name for a kid, if any of you were thinking of names that you would suggest to people. In 11, 2 through 6, he says, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So Zophar is basically saying, uh, it should have been worse for you. You are totally misrepresenting yourself. Um, you are not clean in the eyes of God. In fact, um, you are. God is being very merciful in what has happened to you because you're clearly very guilty. Um, so the three friends are trying to help, I guess, but they're not being terribly helpful. So there's truth in everything that they're saying, right? Um, for Eliphaz, you know, oh, nothing bad happens to good people. Like, yeah, you might say that there are times when something would happen to a bad person for something they did. And if a person didn't do that bad thing, it might not happen. Like just consequences. Sure. Okay. We could concede that, you know, if um, I'm speeding and I get a ticket, if I hadn't been speeding, I wouldn't get a ticket, right? That's the idea. Yeah, there's a there's a kernel of truth in there. Um, what Bildad says is, well, a lot of times, you know, God punishes wickedness, so you must have done something wrong. Well, that's true. There's there's judgment for uh, wickedness. There's that's true. Um, so far, God's being kind of merciful. You you got exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. Well, we none of us deserve anything good um, based on our lives because we have sin in our lives. So. To an extent, uh, God is merciful just that he has is living and had a life that was good. So there's bits of truth, but ultimately what their error is, is they are trying to ascribe God's work to something that is kind of a uh, an indictment against Job. They're kind of trying to say, I understand how God works, um, and this is how he always works. And while they have elements of truth, um, God is going to say later, he is not very pleased with the way that they've spoken. And as is this other guy who's going to come up, uh, Job, the way that he kind of sins through this. So we see he never, uh, speaks against, or he never curses God. Um, he never, um, attributes wrong to him, but throughout it, he does basically say, I was righteous. I was faultless. It's unfair what happened to me, which also is untrue. Maybe he didn't do something directly that, deserved it but at the same time he's not fully righteous he's not fully faultless um and for him to say it's unfair it's really not his place so uh then a, a fifth person so a fourth friend fifth total person comes in and he gets real mad at them um he says it says that he was the youngest so he waited to speak his name was uh elihu and he comes in and after all these chapters we get all the way down to chapter 35 before he speaks. So um, he's going to he's gonna basically school the older guys here and let them know uh, what's going on. So 35, 1 through 8, this is the response 
that he gives. And Elihu answered and said, do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness, a son of man. So at one point, Job is going to say, why I might as well, if it, all this was going to happen, I might as well have just sinned. You know, what was the point of me trying to live righteously if this is going to happen? And what Elihu basically says is, do you think you could like hurt God by sinning? Like, do you think that's really just going to hurt him? Like you are finally going to have a, a leg up on God because you sinned against him. And then he says, basically, even if you're righteous, like, what, what are you really providing for him? What does he receive from you? So he's really trying to put Job in his place of don't think that what you do um, has cosmic implications on who God is, right? Or what choices he makes that God is beholden to Job as a person. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically what he's saying. And he says to you, I'm saying this to you and your friends with you. So why don't you all just hush and let me tell you something true. So then he kind of goes on to uh, extol God's glory and his greatness. And again, this is about God's sovereignty is what the story is about. But then the best part, we get down to chapter 38. God is finished listening and he gives Job an answer and it's long. But I love these first 11 verses of chapter 38 and they're very appropriate and true for us today too. Verse one says, and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. This is a clear setup, right? This is not going to go well for Job. Verse four, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So basically what God says is, who are you to be complaining to me? Who are you to think that you are right and I am wrong? And he goes on for chapters telling, where where were you when this was happening? All with the obvious answer, um, you were nowhere. You had nothing to do with any of this. Um, this is all what I do because I am the Lord. I'm the only one who has this sort of knowledge, this sort of wisdom, right? He's saying, Job, keep your place, right? And Elihu helps them with that a little bit by telling them, what can you do to affect God, right? To um, convince him otherwise. And so he basically is making the, God is telling Job, let's just remember who's the one who created the earth and everything in it. And let's remember who is just a person. Let's remember who is just here, who is a creation, not a creator. So after God finally lays down the law with Job after listening to him and his friends whine for a really long time. 
Job has this opportunity to where he can finally hear the truth because he's hearing it from God, not from one of his silly friends, not even from Elihu, who was doing a pretty good job. This is why he says, chapter 42, it says, And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So he hears God tell him this very big truth that I am sovereign. I am the creator of all this. I am the one who sees everything. I am the one who is wise. You do not have a place to question me. And Job admits that. And so uh, God also is going to rebuke Job's friends for um, not being helpful. Um, here in 42, starting in verse 7, it says, The Lord has spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt sacrifice for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and so far the Namathite went and did that the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So God is merciful to them all, even though um, they refused to speak what is true, as Job had apparently with this repentance here. And God is merciful with all of them. And so then uh, God restores Job's fortunes. He gives him twice as much as he had before. He actually gets a, a new family as well, which is great. I mean, obviously you can't replace lost children. I don't think that that's what we're supposed to take from this, you know, for the cows and the, or the cattle and the, you know, donkeys and stuff. I don't know. They're probably about the same in his heart. Um, so it's not really the point that, oh yes, this replacement family is just as good as the one you lost, but rather that even in the midst of the suffering that God still blessed him, provided for him and gave him new joys to experience. So, as we read this story again, one that I bet for a lot of us, at least the narrative part is kind of familiar. There's a few things that I think we can take as applications. One, in contrast to what the friends would say, um, bad things do happen to quote unquote good people. Again, none of us are truly good. It's only through Jesus that we can be considered righteous, but bad things do happen to good people. There are things that happen that do not have a direct consequence from sin. So we know that there are consequences to actions, whether good or bad. And sometimes we have a good consequence from a good action. Sometimes we have consequences that maybe on the outside we'd say are bad, even from a good action. But we can't just expect that bad things that happen to us, that trials, that sufferings that we go through are a direct response from God to our sin or to the sin of someone else. So again, back to the speeding example, if I speed and I get a ticket, yeah, it's because I was transgressing the law that I got that ticket. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that every time we do something wrong, there's going to be this equal punishment immediately, or even that every time we're doing things that God would call us to, that there's going to be some sort of good consequence. That's not really how the world works. That's not how a sinful world works. And that's not how God chooses to intervene in our world. 
ultimately we know that believers are promised that they will go through sufferings and trials. And the, the thing that we always have to remind ourselves of is that the good that we would have for ourselves isn't actually probably the best that there is for us. Because if we were to choose the good for us, we would make things easy and we would keep things status quo. No major things would ever happen to us. That would probably be our default. We wouldn't be like, you know what? I think I'd love to choose my consequence for this good action to be a suffering that will grow me more into a person who reflects Jesus to the world. Uh, we, on it, for honest with ourselves, I don't think we would choose that. But instead, we have to recognize that suffering and things that happen to us um, that maybe you can't easily just draw a line between, yeah, I sped, so I got a ticket. But maybe it's like, well, I was just kind of living my life and then boom, this really horrible sickness came to my family or this really bad financial crisis came because I lost my job. Things like that, that we should draw a line directly to something that we've done or haven't done. Right. But instead, we have to recognize that God in his sovereignty is working both good things that we would view as a blessing and difficult things. He's working all of those to grow us more into the image of Christ so that we can reflect Christ more to the world because during those times of suffering and trial are some of the times we grow most. A uh, second thing is this, this, that suffering is a part of life, but faith in Jesus means something can be made out of it. So everyone suffers, whether you are a believer in Jesus or you are not, everyone has suffering in their life. Everyone is wronged by other people. Everyone wrongs other people. We are sinned against. We sin against others. But having faith in Jesus means something can be made of it. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake, but instead, like I mentioned, we can grow more into people who reflect Jesus, who are growing into Christ-likeness through that suffering because of faith in Jesus. And then just as a final point, at one point during Job's ramblings, um, he manages to have a moment of lucidity where he has recognition of something that is true. And it kind of gets lost in here, but this is what he says in Job 19, 23 through 26. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Wouldn't he be excited to know that we're reading his book right now? Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Even in his sorrow, Job was able to speak truth that we now know ultimately points to Jesus. We know that even in the midst of Job's suffering, that God has a plan of redemption, one that we know has come through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that we do know that one day, yes, Jesus will stand upon the earth, that he will be the one who is in control and making all things right. And I love verse 26 that it just seems so contradictory and yet we see the truth of the resurrection in it. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Basically, even after I die, I know that I will be resurrected and that I will see God. He probably didn't even fully understand the gravity of what he was saying at that time, which is how we, again, we know that the Holy Spirit is inspiring all these words of scripture that human authors said things that they didn't even know about, that they didn't even know they were saying. But just this hope that we he's pointing to that he didn't fully understand. But as people who live in the church age, we know not just that there is a Redeemer one day, but rather that we know who the Redeemer is. We know that it's Jesus. So when we're going through difficult things, when we're kind of in a situation, a bad things happen to good people kind of situation, ultimately we can look forward to a day uh, that 
after our death or if Jesus comes before then, that we will have a time when we will see our Redeemer face to face. We will see God in the flesh. We will be redeemed and no longer will suffering be what draws us to be more like Christ. Instead, it will be Christ himself there as our example, as we are co-heirs with him, living with him in eternity. Thank you.